This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I think you guys are going to have a whole lot of fun in the next few weeks. Dr. Chodos has put together this incredible program, and, and the, uh, the doctors who are doing the talks are just they're outstanding doctors um, and incredible teachers. I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. Hopefully, I can get us off to a good start. Um, with something that's a little bit different. Uh, probably none of you thought you were be coming to a bench science lecture. Uh, but here we are. I'm going to try to, to tell you about some of the, the state of the art of what's happening in the world of aging biology and how this is beginning to become clinically relevant. And we're trying to turn basic science into therapies that we can use to improve the health and preserve the independence of older adults. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about who I am first, and this is also going to kind of tell you what we're going to be talking about. Um, so I kind of said I, I live a dual life. So I'm, I'm a basic scientist. I work in a laboratory at the bench. Um, I study, like most basic scientists, I study a really, really tiny part of science. Um, and when, when, I, when I get to it, I'll point out what that really tiny part of science is. Uh, but it has to do with trying to understand the pathways that regulate mechanisms of aging. Um, with the goal, hopefully, of figuring out how to turn what we learn into therapies that we could apply to people. But that's just one of my hats. Uh, my other hat is that I'm a geriatrician. Um, I'm very proud of I like to like to say that. I am a geriatrician. Um, I'm faculty here at UCSF. I, I work these days mostly inside the hospital at UCSF in the San Francisco VA, uh, trying to prevent hospital complications in older adults and get people into the hospital, uh, fix the reason why they came in, and keep them in good shape when they leave the hospital. Um, and I hope that some of the basic science work that we're doing is going to help give us better tools to do that in the near future. So this is a talk in three parts. Uh, first, I'll give you a, a broad overview of the state of the field of aging biology. What is aging biology? How do we study aging? Uh, and what's been happening? What have we learned? Uh, and then, uh, what sort of interventions are coming through the pipeline as a result of that? Uh, and how do we think we might be able to test them in clinical trials? And how, how do we even think about uh, applying the biology of aging uh, to human health? Uh, and then some, some interesting questions. This is a new field. We're all trying to figure out how to make it work. How is it going to become useful to people? Um, and, it's, and as I'll tell you, it's, there's a lot of things about it that are very similar to other areas of medicine, but at least one thing that's really different. Um, and this creates some, some challenging questions uh, that we're going to need your help to answer. So we'll end with a series of interesting discussion questions, and then I hope this is going to provoke a lot of questions from you. Uh, so as you think of questions along the way, uh, we're going to try to save these towards the end, uh, but please uh, write them down. Um, when I'm listening to a talk, if I don't write down my question, I forget it by the end uh, too. So write them down, and then we'll have plenty of time at the end to hopefully have a nice discussion about all this. Uh, so first... Biology. Uh, the first thing I want to say, though, just to kind of set the, set the framework, uh, is that people are living longer. People have been living longer for quite a while now, regardless of anything I'm going to tell you about, regardless of any of this exciting uh, basic science and mechanisms of aging, uh, people are living longer. Uh, and this has been going on for about a century and a half. Uh, this is a really cool graph I like to show uh, that points out the, the median, the average lifespan uh, of the longest-lived society on the planet at different points in time. Uh, so these days, that's Japan. It was other countries in the past. But you can see this, this longest-lived society, their average lifespan, has been going up at a very steady pace 
for over 150 years. Uh, this started back in 1850, and maybe it was going on for a little while before then. Uh, this is sort of like the human equivalent of Moore's Law, if you guys have heard of that in the computing world, uh, where computers get, uh, get faster every year. People are living longer every year. Uh, life expectancy uh, is increasing by about one year for every four years that pass. Uh, this has been going on for a while. Nothing can go on forever, right? But it hasn't stopped yet. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether this is going to slow down at some point. Uh, it is slowing down in the United States uh, because we're getting more lifestyle-related diseases like obesity and diabetes and certain cancers. Um, other countries, uh, some of our lifestyle diseases we're moving past, like diseases from smoking. Um, in the United States, life expectancy is, is no longer increasing as a whole, but in other countries it still is. Uh, and this has a lot of implications for how we, uh, how we live in and how we structure our societies. Um, and this is, this is happening, uh, initially this was happening mostly uh, because uh, medical science became better at keeping people from dying when they were young, reducing infant mortality, reducing deaths from infectious disease in childhood. Uh, and so if people can survive into adulthood, your life expectancy will go up. But that's not the whole story. And that stopped being most of the story uh, probably half a century ago or so. And now we're just living longer at every stage of life. This is the likelihood, the probability, that, uh, that a person might die when they're, during their 80-year-old year. year. Uh, so uh, 50 years ago, when you turned 80, there was probably about a 10% chance that you would die that year. Um, who's surprised by that? That almost seems like that would have been higher 50 years ago. But even 50 years ago, once you made it, uh, once you made it into old age, you had a pretty good odds at, at keeping on for a while. Now you have even better odds. Your odds of dying in your 80-year-old year is only half that. Um, so it's not just that we're surviving better through childhood or surviving into middle age or surviving into old age, but we're actually dying less at every stage of our life, living longer and living better at every stage of our life. And this is already happening. If I just asked you, who in this room would like to live to 120? Who would say yes to that? Just a handful. And I heard, I heard a voice yelling out, in what shape? That's a great question. I wouldn't raise my hand for that either. I'm not sure I would go in for the living to 120, uh, unless I knew the shape. Uh, who would go in for living to 120 if you could keep the same health and shape that you were in as, say, a healthy 60-year-old? I would sign up for that. Most of you would, too. So this is the distinction between lifespan and health span, which we'll talk about a lot. Because if we're talking about living longer, if we're talking about trying to use the biology of aging to develop therapies that target mechanisms of aging, what are we trying to accomplish? And this is, this is a question, I don't have the answer to it, but I'm going to give you some ideas of how we're thinking about it, and I want to hear your ideas too. But one idea is this difference between lifespan and health span. So we all hopefully have some period of healthy life, hopefully a lot of it, but most of us will experience a period of, of illness and disability towards the end of life, some people longer than others. So we all have a certain health span, uh, and then we, uh, but our health span isn't equal to our lifespan. Um, now, if you're living longer, you might imagine doing that in a couple of different ways. You could just live longer by extending and drawing out this period of disability. Um, I probably wouldn't sign up for that, and many of you might not either. You could extend health span. You could try to extend the healthy years of life, even if you're not living any longer in the end, but more of those years are in better health and more active and more doing what you want to do. 
most of us would probably sign up for that as, as, a, as a good experience, even if your overall lifespan is the same. So improving health span, even if lifespan doesn't change. Ideally, we'd love to do both. We'd love to have a longer period of health uh, and then also live longer in total, too, extending health span and extending, extending lifespan. But a lot of the, the focus in the aging biology field these days is turning away from just thinking about lifespan, uh, although this can, still can be useful in experiments, as I'll tell you, but more towards thinking about health span. How can we extend the healthy period of life and maybe push out the lifespan as a whole, but still focusing on, on health span? So this is the idea behind the geroscience hypothesis. This is the big idea in aging biology, uh, that a lot of what drives that disability towards the end of life, those chronic diseases, those problems that limit what you can do, is driven by aging and by mechanisms of aging. If we can target mechanisms of aging, maybe there's hope that we can delay or slow a bunch of those chronic diseases all at the same time, or delay... Uh, a bunch of those age-related problems that cause disability all at the same time. So this is, this is the geroscience hypothesis. We don't know if this is right yet. Um, and as we talk about clinical trials later, one of the ideas is, will we be able to test this in people and see if therapies that target mechanisms of aging might indeed slow multiple chronic diseases or delay the onset of uh, syndromes of aging that affect people's lives? So studying aging, one of the common questions that people often, often ask is, how do you study aging? Is this even a thing? How do you do science around aging? And my, my take on this is aging is just like any other phenomenon in biology or health or medicine. First, you need to describe it. What do you think it is that you're looking at? Uh, just say it, say it in words. You know, what does it mean? What does aging mean? Uh, and one take on aging, or at least on the, the parts of aging that we don't like, uh, is that aging is gradual, it's progressive, it's a universal loss of function that begins sometime after a person or an organism comes to maturity. Aging is a universal process that involves loss of function. Uh, you can describe aging in other ways too, but first just describe something. The next step in trying to study something is to, to take that description and refine it into a definition. So let's get more specific. What do we really mean by loss of function? Uh, so maybe we mean susceptibility to chronic diseases. Maybe we mean increasing probability of dying. Maybe we mean loss of reproduction. Or maybe we mean loss of resilience to stressors. Uh, and now you can probably start to imagine how these might apply in, in our own lives. Um, susceptibility to chronic diseases uh, or loss of resilience. Um, you know, breaking a bone is a very different experience for an 18-year-old than it is for an 88-year-old. A lot of that difference is about aging. So you describe something, you define it, and then you turn your definitions uh, into very specific, you operationalize them into very specific definitions that you can use in a study or an experiment. So what are you actually going to look at in a person? What are you actually going to look at in a, in a worm um, so, or in a cell? So you could look at, for example, the number of times that a cell can divide before it's forced to stop. Uh, you could look at lifespan in a worm or a fly. You could even look at lifespan in a yeast, uh, which we can talk about later if, you're, if you'd like. In people, maybe you look at the number of chronic diseases they have as an operationalized definition of aging. Uh, but if you can describe something, define it, and then operationalize that definition, you can study anything. And you can study aging too. So once you've done this, once you've reduced what you, this, this kind of fuzzy idea of aging into a very specific definitions, then you can apply the entire learned uh, knowledge of the, the vast biomedical research enterprise to try to study it and understand it. 
uh, everything from, from model organisms uh, to genetically modified organisms to high-technology automated robotic high-throughput machines. Uh, you can throw all of this against it and see what comes out the other end. Um, and I'll give you uh, one example of, of how... Uh, these sorts of scientific techniques have been applied to aging uh, that led to some, some uh, major insights that are uh, guiding what we know about aging biology. So describe it, define it, and operationalize it. So let's say you're studying a model organism like a worm. Do worms even age? Uh, well, they, they kind of do. I'll, I'll let you decide for yourself. So these are, uh, this is a video from a laboratory at Harvard that studies aging in worms. Uh, there's three worms on the plate here. And you can probably guess which one is the young worm, which one is the middle-aged worm, and which one is the really old worm. Uh, so worms age, you, know, sort of, you look at that and you see something that's aging, right? Um, it kind of fits that description. Um, so you can try to get more specific from the worm point of view how you're going to study this. Um, so maybe let's just focus on lifespan because that's simple. So defining aging as increasing probability of death. This, this worm is getting pretty close. Um, and you can measure the lifespan of laboratory worms. So once you have that kind of narrow definition, you can use an experiment. Then you can, for example, do a genetic screen to look for genes that influence uh, that result. So what's a genetic screen? So the idea that in the laboratory, with an organism like a worm or like a yeast cell, um, you can start with a whole basket of identical, uh, identical organisms, the same genes in every one of them, you zap them with something that will cause random mutations in a bunch of them, different mutations in different ones. And then you wind up with a collection of not quite identical worms in this case, all of which have one gene that's different. And then you measure your assay. In this case, we're using lifespan as the assay. So we measure how long each one of these sets of slightly different worms lives. And maybe one group lives a lot longer. And then we can figure out, well, what, what gene was mutated in that specific group of worms? Um, and what gene was mutated in that specific group of worms that wasn't so helpful? So you can identify genes that affect the process you're studying, like aging. So the first person to, to try to do this systematically uh, was Cynthia Kenyon uh, when she was uh, running a laboratory at UCSF, and she's still a professor at UCSF. Um, she wanted to do exactly that experiment, do a genetic screen on worms to identify genes that made them live longer. Um, the actual story is even more interesting than this, and, and one of you please write down to ask me what the actual story is. But the, but the short version is that she identified uh, individual genes that made worms live a lot longer. So this is the lifespan curve of a worm. The white here are normal worms, so they live an average of about 20 days, this is why worms are good to study for aging studies. You can do an experiment in three weeks. The worms with this particular mutation lived a lot longer. They lived more than twice as long. Their average lifespan was, uh, was about 40 days, and some of them were, were still alive at 60, 70, and even almost 80 days um, with a mutation in this one gene. Um, with an organism like worms in the, in the laboratory, you can then do all sorts of interesting things to, uh, to, to dissect these pathways. So it wasn't just w this one gene that affected lifespan, but lots of others, and they interact. So this is the same gene here, DAF2, lives a long time, but if you combine it with a different mutation, DAF16, these two mutations together, you erase the effect. 
So you can identify entire pathways of interacting genes that regulate how long a worm lives. Some of them add up together. Some of them subtract from each other. Uh, and you can build out entire aging pathways. Um, in this case, it's particularly interesting because this DAF2 isn't some weird worm gene. It's actually the worm version of, of a gene that's involved in insulin and growth hormone signaling. Um, who's heard of insulin? Who's heard of growth hormone? So these are, these are pathways that are in every organism from, from yeast, uh, worms, flies, all the way up into mice, and, of course, people. Uh, this is true of a lot of the pathways that have been identified as important in regulating aging. Uh, they're shared in common in, in throughout the evolutionary tree. So what we find in worms seems like it could well be directly relevant to people. Um, so back in the old days, this was all done by hand. If you wanted to see how long a worm lived, you had to look at it under a microscope yourself. Um, and Cynthia Kenyon actually uh, says that she did most of that experiment by herself uh, because it was she couldn't get a graduate student or postdoc interested enough to do it. <laughs> it seemed like a really boring experiment. Um, it may win her a Nobel Prize one of these days. Uh, these days, though, we have computers and robots. So the way you do a lifespan study in a worm these days, uh, you have these flatbed scanners. Uh, these are plates, each filled with hundreds of worms. Probably each plate is a different strain of worm. You're take, you have dozens of these scanners. You're constantly taking video of all of them, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A computer crunches all the numbers. A computer will tell you how much each worm is moving uh, and can tell you not just when the worm starts to get slow and frail, but even when the worm dies. So it's all automated. It's all robotic. Um, and this has actually turned into a multi-center collaboration to screen thousands of genes and hopefully hundreds or thousands of compounds uh, in dozens of different worm strains to identify uh, pathways, genes, and drugs that affect worm lifespan. So this is 21st century aging biology. Uh, you can do the same thing with yeast. Um, another UCSF researcher, Hao Li, uh, developed this robotic uh, automated video tracking kind of system to track the aging of individual yeast cells. How crazy does that sound? Single cells of yeast, and he can study thousands of them at a time to, to again, try to piece together the different genetic pathways and to test different drugs and how they combine to see what affects aging in yeast. So high technology, high throughput science applied to aging. Do these cells manufacture their own, like, drug, let's say, for lack of a better word, uh, to augment the aging process? Uh, well, every, every organism from, from yeast and flies and worms obviously lives a different length of time. Uh, and, and that's a hugely dramatically different span from just a few days for worms to you know, more than a century for some animals. Uh, and the difference is thought to be encoded mostly in their genes, but then expressed through the proteins and the chemicals that they produce. Um, and a big part of this is trying to understand what are those proteins and chemicals uh, and, are, and what determines how long one organism will live versus another. And, and even within a single species, uh, what makes certain mice live longer than other mice, even if they're genetically identical? Um, and that's actually a, a really cutting-edge question that we don't have a good grasp on yet. So what's been the result of all of this over the last 30 years or so is that we've developed a pretty good understanding of the, the molecular pathways that regulate aging in many different organisms. Um, and you can, you can organize these into uh, what some people call the hallmarks of aging. Other people call them the pillars of aging. I hear it depends on whether you're in the U.S. or Europe, what you like to call them. Uh, but it's a, it's a set of, 
uh, a set of cellular molecular processes uh, that produce what we see as the effects of aging. So these are things like, uh, like uh, changes in how our genes are expressed, uh, the length of our telomeres, um, inflammation, uh, mitochondrial function and energy production. Uh, so many genes within each of these, each of these pathways, uh, but kind of a set of hallmarks uh, that all together interact with each other to create what we see as aging. Um, now, to try to understand this, you can, you can divide these into two broad groups. So, so why do we age, right? What do we know so far about why we age? Let's, we can divide them into two broad groups. So one group is damage, random damage. Life is about damage. Life is entropy. You can't stop it. Uh, we all accumulate damage. Cars rust. Your DNA gets damaged. Your proteins misfold. Your gene expression gets deregulated. Your telomeres attrit. Uh, damage is inevitable. And all of this damage is one of the components that drives what we see as aging. It's not just the damage, though. The damage eventually causes uh, consequences, uh, things that maybe they were, maybe originally they were intended to help, uh, maybe they were you know, adaptive in some way, but if you turn them on too much, if they go on for too long, they become harmful, uh, and they begin to drive some of what we see as aging too. Uh, so, for example, uh, inflammation. Inflammation is often a good thing. You need inflammation to heal wounds, to fight infections. But inflammation that's not in the right place, that's not in the right time, that goes on for too long, becomes harmful. Uh, senescent cells. We'll talk about this a little bit, a little bit more in a moment. Um, cells that have, have too much damage and have stopped dividing uh, and become harmful. Uh, or mitochondrial dysfunction. Gradually, your mitochondria accumulate damage and become less efficient at making energy, and then that can help to drive some of the features of aging. So there's damage, but then there's also these consequences of damage, and together, all of this produces what we see as aging. So if you want to try to intervene on mechanisms of aging, you could, you could go either way. You could try to repair this damage, or you could try to stop the consequences. Um, and some of the, uh, some of the um, interventions that are beginning to come up from the bench science I'll tell you about take both approaches. But we'll talk about the damage first. So all of our bodies, uh, along with those yeast flies and worms in the laboratory, um, all have, all have um, pathways and genes that have evolved to respond to all of this damage, to help to repair it uh, and help to maintain the, the cell and the organism. Um, and we're learning it's really not just about the damage, it's not just about the rust, uh, but it's really more about how you respond to it, how you repair it. Um, and actually, um, I think I can say that um, studying the, the pathways and the genes that are involved in the response, in the repair, uh, has really proven more fruitful in terms of developing interventions uh, than the damage itself. You really can't stop the damage, but you can affect how you respond to it. So one of the ways that our bodies respond to it uh, is through this uh, through stimuli uh, that originally evolved uh, to, to kind of mediate this balance between uh, growth and maintenance. Uh, so this is a common theme uh, in pathways that regulate aging. Uh, this, is, this is super oversimplified, uh, but I think it's helpful in, in broad strokes. Um, in general, cells or an organism will be in one of two states. Either there's lots of food around, and they're rushing to grow and get bigger and divide and produce offspring, or there's not a lot of food around, it's not a good environment, uh, and they're not growing, they're not dividing, and they're instead turning to maintenance 
and just trying to protect themselves. So this idea of growth versus maintenance. And a lot of this is driven uh, by nutrient sensing. Um, both of these ways, though, nutrients and growth factor pathways, these are two of the most consistent and dramatic ways to change lifespan in animals. You can either feed them less, give them less nutrients, and often they'll live longer, or you can turn down their growth signals, turn down their growth hormone, turn down their insulin-like growth factor, and, and they'll live longer, often smaller, but they'll live longer. Uh, now, the reason for that is not because of this kind of sledgehammer effect of there's less food, but it's because uh, having less food or less growth signals uh, turns on these very particular pathways, these metabolic signals, uh, that in turn turn on the genes responsible for responding to stress and repairing damage. So it's, it's all a series of regulated processes. Uh, and you can identify all of the genes and molecules and compounds that are involved in these signaling pathways and try to figure out how to, how to turn on uh, just the things that stimulate the repair. Uh, and these might become candidates for turning into interventions that target aging mechanisms. So drugs, for example, uh, that help to turn on these repair pathways, either directly or through, met or, or through these uh, metabolic nutrient signals. Uh, and this is where, uh, as we'll talk about later, for example, the idea of metformin uh, intervening on mechanisms of aging comes from. Uh, metformin is a drug uh, that activates at least one of these metabolic signals involved in this stress response. So metabolic signals and stress response is one way to try to target mechanisms of aging. Uh, another example I'll tell you about uh, is this idea of senescence. So senescent cells are zombie cells. Uh, so the idea is that we all, our cells all accumulate damage. Our DNA gets damaged. We get mutations. Uh, that puts cells on the way towards cancer. And cancer is obviously bad for us. Uh, our cells don't want to become cancer cells. Uh, so they've evolved mechanisms to try to prevent that. Uh, one of those mechanisms is senescence. So if a cell gets just enough damage that it still, it still works, but it knows that it's damaged, it knows it's on the way to becoming a cancer cell, it turns itself off. It, pr it puts itself in a, in a zombie-like state where it can no longer grow or divide. And that way it doesn't turn into a cancer cell. It's a, pr a self-protection mechanism. The trouble, though, so that's a good thing, right? That helps to, that's one of the reasons... Uh, why we don't all get cancer when we're very young. But like many things in life, it has a bad side too. So I, I call these zombie cells because they're not, they're not dead and, and they're not really completely sleeping too. But they actually produce this, this inflammatory soup uh, of all of these, uh, these cytokines and these inflammatory molecules. And we don't really know why yet. We, we think it might be to try to attract immune cells to, to finish them off. Uh, but the result of it is that uh, they're generating inflammation, and inflammation that not just affects the cells around them, but that spreads to the entire body, too. Um, and ironically, that can actually promote cancer in nearby cells, uh, because inflammation can, it, it can harm cells and can even accelerate damage. So senescence is a good thing. It helps to prevent cancer, uh, but those senescent cells wind up being bad for us, too. So one of the ideas... Uh, is what if you can, you know, we don't want to prevent senescence, we don't want those cells to turn into cancer, but what if we could kill those cells after they become senescent and just wipe them out, prevent them from, from creating that, that extra inflammation? Uh, and so one of the threads 
in, in neuroscience is trying to, uh, to use uh, uh, traditional drug discovery techniques like high-throughput screens and, and drug screening to identify drugs that selectively kill just senescent cells while leaving normal cells alone. Uh, these are called senolytics. Lytic meaning to, to remove or to kill, and seno for senescence, so drugs that target senescent cells. And these are some of the drugs uh, that are getting close to being tried in, in clinical trials as a therapy that targets a mechanism of aging. Uh, another uh, kind of big picture uh, mechanism I'll, I'll tell you about briefly is about stem cells. Uh, so many of, the, many of these hallmarks of aging, uh, DNA damage, the inflammation secreted by senescent cells, uh, the, you know, mitochondrial producing energy less efficient, all of, these, um, all of these together can help to exhaust your stem cells. So stem cells are very unique cells in our body. They're the only kinds of cells in our body that have to constantly divide for our entire life. Uh, they're never finished with their work, and their job is to produce the cells uh, for, the, for the whole rest of our body. Um, so it's very hard work. Uh, stem cells, uh, if they go wrong, can turn into cancer cells. Um, but they can also become exhausted and just shut down if they accumulate too much damage. And if you lose all your stem cells, uh, then you might have trouble uh, regenerating your tissue or recovering or healing a wound uh, and things like that. As we get older, our stem cells tend to work less efficiently. Uh, so that affects our muscle repair. It affects our wound healing. It affects the function of our immune system. Uh, but what if we can understand why stem cells get exhausted? What exactly is it about damage? What is it about inflammation? What are the genes uh, that protect stem cells from exhaustion or that accelerate it? What are the chemicals and the compounds at play? Uh, and we can either figure out uh, how, to, how, to, uh, how to rejuvenate stem cells uh, by repairing that damage or preventing it, uh, or maybe replacing stem cells. Um, and if we can do that, maybe we can improve muscle repair after exercise. Maybe we can improve wound healing. Uh, maybe we can improve the function of the immune system. Um, so therapies that help to rejuvenate stem cells uh, are another example of, of something that's coming along the pipeline uh, and getting closer to being tested uh, in human clinical trials. Uh, I will say, you may... Who's seen an ad in the paper for a stem cell? Or does anyone read newspapers anymore? Who's seen an ad online for a stem cell clinic? Oh, good, only a couple of people. <laughs> so this is one of the challenges in this field, as I'll talk about more later, is, uh, is figuring out what's real and what's not. And the, uh, the concept of stem cells uh, has run away a little bit. Uh, there are no stem cell clinics out there that anyone should be going to. Uh, but uh, there are people who are working really hard on, on scientific approach to stem cell therapies, and even... Uh, and even starting now to do clinical trials uh, in a very kind of limited and, and rigorous way. Uh, so this is an example of the sort of thing that you may see out there, uh, um, but I wouldn't go running to a clinic yet, uh, but is also emerging in a rigorous way into real clinical trials. So I can't finish a, a section about uh, geroscience and interventions coming from basic science without uh, giving a list of some of the interesting stuff that people have been working on and that may uh, and that are beginning to be used in clinical trials. Uh, so here's a list. I organized this into therapies that come from uh, metabolic signals that help to turn on repair pathways. Some of the some of the drugs that have emerged from screens looking for things that kill senescent cells. Uh, some other drugs and some other stuff. Um, and we'll talk more about uh, a few of these and how they're being applied in clinical trials now. Uh, 
So about these clinical trials. So we've learned a lot about what controls aging, about mechanisms and pathways and drugs. How do we figure out how to actually, will these be useful in human health? How do we even approach this? How do you do a clinical trial on aging? Uh, so back to, our, back to our framework on how you do science. Um, who thought they were going to come to a lecture here about how to do science and how to design a clinical trial? Uh, but you're getting it anyway. So remember, if you want to study a process, you describe it, you define it, and you get really specific about operationalizing that definition for, for an experiment or for a study. So how can we apply that framework to a clinical trial? Uh, well, we'll start in the preclinical world. Uh, which means in the laboratory before you actually get to testing something in people. Uh, often that involves testing it in laboratory animals. Um, so in this case, we could maybe uh, actually study lifespan of, say, a mouse um, as a surrogate for studying aging. Um, and I'll tell you about a, a very uh, uh, long-standing now and sophisticated way to do this. So the National Institute on Aging, part of the National Institutes on Health, uh, runs what they call the Interventions Testing Program. And this is sort of like a multi-center clinical trial for mice. Uh, so it's, it's three universities around the country who worked really hard uh, for about 15 years now uh, to develop exactly the same protocols, exactly the same everything, to do exactly the same experiment in replicated in three places uh, to test compounds and drugs to see if they make healthy animals live longer. Um, there are about 30 compounds already that have either gone through this or are in the process of being tested. Uh, studying, studying lifespan takes a while. Uh, this is one of the reasons why it would never make sense to study lifespan in people. Uh, but even studying lifespan in laboratory, mouse, laboratory mice is a five, six-year experiment. So these are, these are, uh, these are long studies. Uh, but it's generated about seven hits so far, uh, chemicals or compounds uh, that make these healthy animals live longer. Uh, this is an example of one of them, uh, the second one to be identified, called rapamycin, uh, which uh, is a drug that, uh, again, is one that targets these metabolic signals um, and helps to turn on pathways that, uh, when nutrients are not around so much, help to turn on repair mechanisms. Um, so rapamycin is one of these hits, and there's, there's about half a dozen others. So this is one way to, as a kind of a stepping stone uh, between you know, finding interesting things in cells or in worms or in yeast, uh, before we get ready to really try them in a clinical trial. But how do we think about clinical trials then? So back to this idea about lifespan versus health span. Um, you know, it really doesn't make sense to try to study lifespan, right, in people. Um, it would make a lot more sense to try to study this, to try to study health span. But how do you do that? How do you quantify health? How do you quantify aging? Um, I think there's a few ways we might be able to do this. So the first point to remember is that age is not a number. Uh, I mean, that's like a cliche, right? You're only as old as you feel. But it's actually true. And there's biology behind that. Uh, age is not a number on a calendar, but age is physiological. There's a, geriatricians have a saying that if you've seen one 30-year-old, you've seen every 30-year-old. They all basically act the same when, you're, when they're in the hospital or whatever. But if you've seen one 80-year-old, you've seen one 80-year-old. Everyone is different, dramatically different. And I'm sure you see this in your own lives and among your parents, among your friends. Uh, everyone ages in a different way. So age is not about a number, but, it's, but there's, this, there's this something else. There's this, this physiology, this function, this biology to it. Can we, can we try to measure that and quantify it? Uh, 
And there's a few ways we could try to do that. So again, thinking back to what is, what is a definition of aging in people? What do we mean when we say aging? And one thing was chronic diseases. So maybe one way to, to quantify this is, is by number of chronic diseases someone has or the severity of their chronic diseases. And maybe we can try to, for example, uh, prevent people from getting more chronic diseases. And I'll talk more about that as a potential outcome for a clinical trial that targets aging mechanisms. Then there are these things called geriatric syndromes, like frailty and falls. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment and why they might be really interesting uh, outcomes to look at in clinical trials. And this idea of loss of resilience to acute stress, maybe we, can, maybe we can figure out how to measure that and use that as an outcome of a clinical trial. So not, not looking at aging per se, and certainly not looking at lifespan or calendar years, but, but trying to really, what do we mean when we look at someone and say, this person seems older than that person? What does that, what does that mean? Can we boil that down to something that we can uh, use in a clinical trial? So geriatric syndromes, who's heard of geriatric syndromes? The geriatrician and one other person. <laughs> well, good. Uh, I suspect you're going to hear more about this in the next few weeks. So I'll, I'll just give you the kind of brief introduction. But, but in many ways, geriatric syndromes are, are kind of the, they're what aging really means, um, at least the way a geriatrician sees aging. So geriatric syndromes are, are serious big problems. But they're problem, problems that really affect people's lives, problems that cause people to lose their independence, uh, problems that cause disability. But they're problems that have more than one cause, often many causes. And most of those causes, or all of them, are driven by aging. So my favorite example to describe them is the fall. So no one ever falls for just one reason. You might, you might think or someone might say that they tripped on a curb, but that's not what caused them to fall. Uh, people trip on curbs all the time. What caused them to fall was a whole bunch of other stuff that maybe prevent them from seeing the curb, maybe the neuropathy that prevent them from knowing where their foot was, uh, maybe the, the weakness in their leg that they weren't raising it high enough, maybe it was their truncal weakness, so when they started to fall, they couldn't recover, maybe it's the macular degeneration that prevent them from seeing the curb in the first place, maybe it was the medicine they're taking for their high blood pressure that, um, that lowered their blood pressure when they were standing and made them lightheaded, all of this together, plus a dozen other things, all came together to cause that fall. So that's a geriatric syndrome, something that is multifactorial. It involves many different systems in your body, many different organs, and also things outside your body, like the medications you take or the things you use to, to walk or the support you have. Um, many of these are related to aging, and they're made worse by aging. And the, and the syndrome itself is the, is the integrative outcome. Everything comes together to cause this problem. So uh, people often, uh, so when I, when I say to people that I'm a geriatrician, usually the first question that you get is, what's a geriatrician? Uh, the second question I get is, what does a geriatrician do? Um, and in many ways, we, are, we feel like we're the specialists that focus on managing these geriatric syndromes, the, the complex management that you need to identify all the different factors that contribute to them and figure out which are more important, which maybe are less important, and which ones to focus on treating to prevent falls, or to slow cognitive decline, or to improve someone's mobility, or to, uh, to help heal chronic wounds. So geriatric syndromes, really interesting potential as outcomes for something that targets aging, because if aging is the common risk factor for all these things, maybe if we target that common mechanism, we can, we can improve these. Chronic diseases. 
so these are some of the uh, common risk factors for heart disease. Very common problem, affects a lot of people, causes, causes a lot of trouble. Uh, high blood pressure, smoking, high cholesterol, diabetes. Uh, we call these modifiable risk factors because if you treat the high blood pressure, if you treat the smoking, you can reduce someone's risk of heart disease. Um, and you can see these, these contribute a lot. They, they can increase your risk of heart disease a lot, 50%, 60%, almost 80% uh, high blood pressure and cholesterol. Um, so you can do a lot of good by treating blood pressure, by stopping smoking, and all these things. Managing risk factors in cardiovascular disease is a big deal that improves a lot of lives, saves a lot of lives. This is when you put the risk from aging on the same graph. The other stuff almost disappears. Uh, and again, this stuff is really, really important. We can do things about these, and we can save lives. Uh, but, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could do something about this, too? Uh, so treating, so aging is a risk factor uh, for many serious chronic diseases. In many cases, it's the, it's the dominant risk factor, but it's a risk factor that we, we really don't know what to do about. So the, so the hope is that by targeting mechanisms of aging, maybe we can treat that risk factor. Maybe we can lower the risk that aging contributes to heart disease, to, to uh, dementia, to diabetes. And maybe if those mechanisms are shared in common between those chronic diseases, maybe we can do that for several chronic diseases at the same time. So this is the idea of targeting chronic diseases. Uh, and the thing about having aging as the common risk factor for all of these chronic diseases is it means that they don't tend to happen by themselves. You get one, you tend to get more than one. Um, the aging drives several of them. So this is, the, uh, this is how often people have three or more chronic conditions over the course of their life. Um, and having three or more chronic conditions, uh, which is sometimes uh, the definition of multimorbidity, uh, goes up exponentially as we get older because aging is driving all of them. So most chronic diseases don't happen alone, and maybe, maybe this would be an interesting outcome for a clinical trial that targets mechanisms of aging. Maybe we could slow the number of chronic diseases someone gets. So those might be things that we use as an outcome. How might we design clinical trials? What sort of settings would we look at? Um, you know, if you want to study aging, does that mean you have to do something for your entire life? Do you have to start a clinical trial when people are 18 and then follow them for 100 years? You know, good luck getting that, that grant approved by the NIH. Uh, but maybe there's other ways. So these are, these are two frameworks uh, that people are, are looking at to try to, uh, to in, in which we could study interventions that target uh, aging. So one is this idea of uh, resilience or, or functional reserve. So the idea that... Um, like I said, with the broken bones. You know, a broken bone, not a big deal for an 18-year-old. They won't be able to snowboard for a few weeks. Maybe they'll need to build their strength up back a bit. That's really not going to affect their life in a serious way. A broken bone for an 88-year-old might be as bad as getting metastatic cancer. It can be life-changing and life-ending. It's a completely different phenomenon, even though it's the same thing. Um, in, many, in many ways, because that 88-year-old has less resilience, less ability to cope with that stress and all the stresses around it, the surgery, the hospitalization, maybe the infection, uh, of being immobile, of trying to recover their strength. So when you, when you get sick, when you break a bone, everyone takes a hit. Everyone loses function. Uh, and hopefully we recover some of that function. But maybe if we provide an intervention that targets mechanisms of aging, we can recover better, recover faster. So maybe you could study aging interventions in the setting of this sort of acute health stress around a surgery or around a pneumonia or around a broken bone. Another framework uh, 
is the idea of looking at health span. So, for example, looking at multimorbidity, looking at chronic diseases. If you gave someone an intervention over a period of you know, maybe a few years, uh, could you show that they, uh, they slow their decline or that they, they maintain something better? Uh, maybe they stave off chronic diseases for a few years. Uh, maybe they get one, but not the second or third. Maybe that chronic disease doesn't get worse. Maybe their geriatric syndrome gets better. Maybe they don't fall as often. Uh, maybe they're less frail. Maybe they're stronger and more mobile. Uh, so can you, can you study them over a longer time uh, to try to prevent this, uh, the decline that you might often see and instead keep them steady for a while? So studying health span. Um, this isn't really new. Uh, this is the way that, uh, that geriatricians do clinical trials. We just don't generally do them with drugs. Drugs are often bad, um, as, I'll, as I'll talk about more in a moment. Uh, but we study how to get people over health stresses. We study how to keep people healthy longer. Uh, we already do clinical trials like this. Uh, and we already try to improve care in these sorts of areas. So for example, uh, UCSF has a new acute care of elders unit and a new geriatric orthopedics co-management service. Uh, these are specialized care settings just for older adults. They're designed to help people get through the acute stress of their hospitalization or, or their hip fracture in better shape and go home independent. So that's an example of trying to boost someone's resilience. Uh, or, for example, there have been a number of clinical trials of exercise uh, to improve frailty and improve muscle uh, strength in older adults and to, to be able to walk easier, go upstairs easier, and walk more uh, and stay independent better. And that's, a, that's really a health span study. That's giving an intervention, exercise, trying to keep, keep someone healthier uh, for longer. Um, so we can, we can try to apply these care settings and these clinical trial designs to study uh, interventions that are emerging from the bench, bench science of aging uh, to see if they can work in the same way. And this is already happening. Uh, so I'll give you a few hints about some of the clinical trials that are already either underway or in an advanced state of design where people are applying these frameworks to test interventions. So starting first with this health span idea, um, one of, the, uh, one of the first studies that's, uh, that's ongoing uh, is using, uh, again, that drug rapamycin, or actually a drug like rapamycin, one of these metabolic signals that, are, that uh, activates repair pathways, to try to prevent respiratory infections in elders that are vulnerable uh, to respiratory infections, to pneumonia and viral infections. So that's an idea of trying to prevent uh, a problem, trying to keep them healthier longer. That's uh, a health span clinical trial uh, using a drug that emerged from the study of aging. Uh, another one that some of you may have heard of is this idea of using metformin to try to delay the onset of chronic diseases. So metformin is used to treat diabetes. It's a very good drug for that in its first line. Um, the idea here, though, is to test if it might help to slow or delay the onset of other chronic diseases that are not directly related to diabetes, things like cardiovascular disease. Uh, and this is the targeting aging with metformin study, uh, which is designed as a, as a nationwide multicenter clinical trial. Um, and is, is currently uh, trying to figure out how to, uh, how to fund it, uh, and has, has been designed by a consortium of a number of uh, public universities. Um, there's also a, a couple of small clinical studies of mesenchymal st uh, stem cells uh, to treat frailty, to try to, uh, to see if uh, these, these very specific um, uh, stem cell injections uh, can improve muscle function in people. Uh, this is run by a company uh, that's uh, affiliated with the University of, of Miami. So this is that, that one example of a, of a group that's trying to rigorously see uh, what stem cells can do in older adults. 
So these are clinical trials that are either underway or, uh, or soon will be. Uh, and same for this concept of resilience. Um, what might go down in history is the first clinical trial that uh, used uh, a therapy from aging biology to target uh, older adults uh, was a study of rapamycin uh, and the flu vaccine, so seeing if rapamycin changed the response of older people to the flu shot. Um, and it was a very small study, very modest results, um, but it was really the first of its kind. And that was the, that's the study that led to then this, this follow-on uh, looking at respiratory infections. So this is an example of a resilient study. Uh, the vaccine is sort of a positive stress, right? It's something your body needs to respond to. So seeing if an intervention that targets aging improves that response. Uh, another small study underway at the Mayo Clinic uh, gives rapamycin to people in the context of cardiac rehab after a heart attack or, um, or after surgery uh, to see if that improves functional recovery. Um, and uh, another clinical trial uh, uses metformin uh, to see if it would improve um, muscle strength after resistance exercise training in the elderly. So again, targeting uh, frailty, one of these geriatric syndromes. So these are all uh, uh, either finished or currently underway. So one can imagine that uh, over the course of, of a person's life, uh, you might find yourself in, in a few of these different situations, which all apply to you, uh, and, that, and that maybe uh, you can imagine um, interventions that target aging uh, affecting you at different stages of your life. So maybe early on, uh, trying to assess your risk uh, for geriatric syndromes, your risk for uh, losing strength, uh, and then... Uh, customizing preventative therapies that target whatever your personal risk factors are. Maybe when you first show that sign of a chronic disease, when that multimorbidity is, is just beginning to emerge, maybe that would be a time uh, to intervene with something to try to prevent additional chronic diseases, like that metformin study. Uh, maybe interventions that target mechanisms of aging would make sense in a prehabilitation setting, when you're trying to get in the best possible shape for a surgery or for chemotherapy. Uh, and again, these are things we're already doing, trying to get people in the best possible shape for surgery or chemotherapy through exercise interventions, uh, through optimizing uh, drug, uh, uh, people's drug regimens. Uh, but maybe there's a role for uh, mechanisms of aging there too. Uh, or when you're actually sick. Uh, if you have a bad flu, for example, and you're in the hospital, uh, at risk uh, for delirium, at risk for getting weak and not being able to walk as well, maybe that's a time... Uh, when therapies from uh, that target mechanism of aging could help too. So, so aging is a bit of a funny thing. It's not something that just happens to you once, of course. It's, it's, it's a continuous part of your life. Uh, and you can imagine a few different settings over the course of your life uh, when this sort of thing might be helpful, if we can figure out how to do it. So that leads into our, into our ethical questions. Um, so this is a new field. It's a new field that we're trying to figure out how to make it work and how will it make sense. And I, I hope I've given you some hints that in some ways uh, it's, it's not really different from other areas of medicine. Uh, you know, we, we might be looking at the same sorts of clinical interventions that we already do with older adults, just with, uh, with drugs uh, that target different pathways. Uh, and maybe that's not that different from the way that you treat heart disease or treat cancer. But something is different about aging, right? There's a reason why this seems a little... Uh, a little odd, right? I feel that too. I think this is fundamentally what makes aging different. Aging is the only thing, besides dying, I suppose, which you could see as a complication of aging, aging is the only thing that happens to every single one of us, inevitably. 
It's the only, uh, it's the only thing where we might be talking about medical therapies that literally affect everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in the world. And that makes it different. And that, I think, uh, raises some very, some very special questions uh, that we need to be very thoughtful about. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few of those questions and tell you a, a couple of ways that, that I might think about it, uh, but I hope that you can tell me too. So the first question, is aging actually a disease? Are we treating aging? Um, I, I hope I've given you the impression that we're not. I, I, I think that aging, aging, of course, is aging just is. It's a process. It happens to all of us. It's not bad. There's a lot of good things about it. Uh, there are things about it probably that we all wish we could change, and maybe you know, we, we, can, we can target those things in our clinical trials. I don't think that aging should be a disease. I don't think it is a disease. Um, but people might have different opinions about that. How can it be a disease if it happens to everyone? On the other hand, if it's not a disease, uh, how do you, what do you tell the FDA that you're treating? How do you do a clinical trial? How do you get approval for a drug? Um, and I, I tried to give you some sense of how we might think about targeting uh, phenomenon of aging that maybe represent the bad side of aging, uh, things like geriatric syndromes, things like frailty. We're not targeting aging itself, but maybe we can target these phenomenon of aging. Maybe that's a way of threading that needle. But is aging a disease? In uh, what aspect of aging will clinical trials target? So for a good part of the last hour, you heard my opinion on that. Uh, my opinion as a geriatrician and as a researcher. Uh, should the researchers and doctors be the ones to decide what we're trying to treat? Maybe not. Uh, maybe all of you should be involved too. Maybe the whole community should be, just, everyone is affected by this. Uh, maybe we should all be deciding uh, what is most important to us? What are the aspects of aging that we would most like to see uh, researched and most like to see treatments developed for? Uh, and maybe we should be all doing this together. Does studying aging necessarily involve large clinical trials of frail, vulnerable elderly people? Is that a bad thing? Uh, you know, most of you probably have seen firsthand, uh, and as geriatricians, we certainly do, that older adults, especially the frailer, uh, are often the first to be harmed by drugs or by fancy new treatments, and they're often the last to be helped. Um, often our job is about trying to be really thoughtful about what we really think might be helpful and trying to prevent harm from people. And now we're going to do a giant clinical trial of something? Uh, on the other hand, if you want to improve something, you, you need to you know, improve it in people who have it. Um, so if we're trying to improve uh, negative phenomenon that hurt people that are related to aging, maybe we really do need to study the people who have that, the people who are frail, the people who are at risk of not being able to walk again after the hip fracture. Maybe we need to study aging in people with manifestations of aging. Um, and really, actually, the fact that so many clinical trials exclude older people, often just as a blanket, is really bad. And I think most clinicians and most people, uh, and even most researchers realize this, at least in an intellectual way, you know, most clinical trials don't really directly help you treat the person sitting in front of you. The person sitting in front of you, the older person with a couple of chronic diseases who's on a bunch of medications, was excluded from that clinical trial. So we don't really know if that drug is, would help that person. We're trying to extrapolate from younger people, from the, often from the human equivalent of, of laboratory mice, uh, who are the people who are mostly enrolled in clinical trials. So we should be doing more clinical trials 
uh, with older people, with multiple chronic diseases, because those are the people who get treated anyway. We should know whether things really work in them. We shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be avoiding them, certainly not if we're targeting aging. Uh, who gets treatments that target aging? Uh, everybody, right? Aging affects everyone. We should all be able to get these treatments, right? That's the way medicine and society should work. But what if it's really expensive? What if it's something that is inherently rare? How do we decide who is going to get it and when they're going to get it? Um, and there are examples of these sorts of choices from other fields of medicine. So, for example, uh, some drugs are expensive. I'll call this by choice. They're expensive because they can be. So an example of that are the, the recent cures for hepatitis C. These are incredible drugs. They really help people. They work really well. They don't have to be as expensive as they are. They're expensive as they are because they were priced by the market to be somewhat less expensive than the cost of the liver transplants that they would prevent. So some drugs are just expensive, and I'm not passing a value judgment on that, but that's the reality. So some drugs are expensive because they can be. And one could imagine uh, drugs that target serious manifestations of aging could be made that expensive too. If a drug can keep someone from having to go to a nursing home after the hip repair, that saves a lot of money. Maybe that drug should be really expensive. Some drugs are expensive by design. They just they have to be because they're expensive to make. This applies to a whole class of drugs uh, based on antibodies. Uh, these drugs have, have really revolutionized medicine. They've let, us, uh, they've let us create drugs that target things that we otherwise couldn't target. Um, they've had a huge impact on cancer, on inflammatory diseases. Uh, they've been a huge boon. Um, no one's really figured out how to make them cheaply, though. They're inherently really expensive. Uh, one could easily imagine uh, drugs that target mechanisms of aging that are similarly antibody-based and would similarly be expensive. Um, what, if it, what if it turned out that you need to take them for a long time for them to work? Uh, what if it wasn't a window? What if it was something that would work continuously for 20 years? Uh, how would you pay for that? How would you decide who gets it? Some things are expensive because they're high-tech and complicated. Uh, so an, a now old-fashioned example of this is dialysis, kidney replacement. So back when dialysis was invented almost 50 years ago, um, one of the, I think one of the first sites to, to have dialysis machines was the University of Washington, where I went to medical school. Um, and we learned when I was a medical student about the, about the uh, ethical review board that would meet every once in a while to decide who would get a spot on the dialysis machines and who wouldn't because there weren't enough to go around. They were too expensive and too complicated to make. And they, they tried to be really thoughtful about it uh, in accordance with the time period in which they lived um, and made decisions probably that we wouldn't agree with these days about who was living a worthy life, who had the most to survive for. Um, it sounds crazy. Uh, these days, dialysis machines, it seems like there's more dialysis centers than, than drugstores. You can find one every street corner in the United States. Of course, there's a reason for that. Dialysis is still expensive and complicated, but as a society, we made the decision back in the 60s that anyone who needed dialysis, the federal government would pay for through Medicare. And so everyone who needs dialysis gets it in the United States. Would we make the same decision today about other medical problems? 
Uh, other treatments, newer treatments, are also expensive because they're high-tech. Some of you may have heard of this, uh, this CAR-T therapy uh, for certain kinds of cancer, these chimeric antigen receptor T cells. This is super cool. Uh, you take people's immune cells out of their bodies, you reprogram them in the lab, and then you give them back to them to fight their cancer. Uh, it's really exciting technology. It's still early. We're still figuring out, you know, how long it's going to work for and who it's really going to help. Um, but doesn't that process sound really expensive? Taking things out, doing things in the lab, complicated, long. It's hard to imagine doing that for every single person every year. Uh, some things are just really uh, complicated. Could you, uh, what, if, what if an aging therapy uh, was in the same sort of fashion? Um, how would we do it for everyone? And some things are just involve scarce materials. Uh, organ transplants or, or of course, the, um, the biggest example of this. There's only so many organs, um, and we need to decide as a society who has first dibs on them, who's highest on the list. And so there are lists, and we make uh, decisions, and we try to do it in the fairest possible way about who gets the next liver, who gets the next kidney. There's just not enough to go around. Um, so what if there are materials uh, that turn out to have an effect on aging that are similarly scarce because they come from other people? Um, things that come from other people will always be inherently scarce. So how do we decide who gets these things? Um, and just as, a, as an aside, this idea of, of kind of Frankenstein medicine, uh, you know, this uh, parts replacement approach to medicine, uh, my kidneys break, I'll fix my kidneys, my liver goes, I'll fix my liver, my heart goes, I'll fix my heart. Um, Sometimes it seems like that's the approach of modern medicine. It really doesn't work uh, because when these things happen in an older adult, um, the whole body is getting old at the same time. Maybe, you know, heart's a little bit different from the kidney, uh, but the whole person is getting old. And you can't just replace a person by swapping out all their parts. Um, it doesn't work. Um, and, we, and we know it doesn't work. And we know we have to be actually really thoughtful about uh, the harm that can come from trying to do too much at the same time. Uh, for example, uh, we're starting to understand that dialysis, is, dialysis, believe it or not, doesn't always make someone live longer. That seems like it should be utterly intuitive and straightforward. The kidneys are failing, you replace the kidneys, someone lives longer. But it's actually not always the case uh, because if someone is very frail, if they have other problems too, all of the stress and harm from dialysis can actually offset the benefit. So swapping out parts doesn't work. Um, in a sense... Uh, that helps, that's almost a force for, uh, for equality in our healthcare system uh, because you can't just buy a replacement body from the individual parts. Eventually, your whole body uh, ages. What if aging therapies change that? What if aging therapies change the response of an older person to swapping out parts? What if it makes Frankenstein medicine uh, become more useful? What effect would that have on equality and disparities? So, who will benefit? We all get older. Everyone should benefit from, age, from therapies that target aging in a perfect world. But we know that sometimes fancy, expensive health care can actually exacerbate health care disparities and exacerbate health disparities. So is there a danger that therapies that target aging could similarly exacerbate disparities? On the other hand, uh, it's also easier to fix something that's broken. It's easier to, to treat a disease than to prevent a disease from happening sometimes. It's easier to... Um, it's easier to make someone better than to, uh, than to prevent them from getting worse. It's hard to make a healthy person healthier. Um, so who is most affected by aging and by the problems of aging now? Um, and will aging therapies exacerbate or reduce disparities in health and health care? I don't know the answer to this. 
One of the strongest predictors for how long you're likely to live is the, the wealth of the community in which you reside, and probably your own wealth too. Uh, rich people, rich communities live longer in the United States. Uh, life expectancy can vary dramatically in just a couple of miles based on the wealth of the community. We, uh, we don't really understand the biology behind that. Surely there is biology. The poor and the disadvantaged often have a vicious cycle of health problems, snowballing, causing accelerated aging, and even geriatric syndromes. Um, a colleague of mine uh, occasionally goes to, to provide health care uh, to the rural poor in Chiapas, Mexico, for example, and, and one day came back and showed us pictures of the patients she helped as a geriatrician. And they look like any other geriatric patients that we care for um, up, here in, up here in San Francisco, except when she said that they were in their 50s. And you would swear they looked 90. Um, and that's kind of an extreme contrived example. Uh, but when you study... Uh, uh, populations uh, who are disadvantaged with less access to health care, uh, with, with difficult lives, stressful lives, in a variety of settings, you see kind of the acceleration of, of all the things I talked about that are quantitative measures of aging. More chronic diseases earlier, geriatric syndromes earlier. Uh, you see this kind of accelerated aging. There's, there's, there's probably a biology going on there, too. And again, we don't understand it. We don't know if that's the same aging that happens in everyone or if it's something specific to... Uh, to biological stress, uh, but there's at least reason to wonder uh, if treating aging might have an outsized effect on that sort of population, uh, even more so than making healthy people even healthier. I don't know the answer. So aging biology is here. Um, I've tried to give you at least a snapshot clue of, of some of the things we've learned over the last 30 years uh, studying aging in the laboratory and trying to learn how to apply it to human health. And then how we might go about seeing uh, how we can use therapies that target mechanisms of aging uh, to improve human health through clinical trials, how we think about designing those clinical trials, what we might look at as outcomes, uh, and what's currently in the pipeline. Uh, and really, what do we do from here? Um, how is the field of geroscience, the field of translational aging biology, going to evolve? Um, and I hope that that will involve some of you uh, in helping to tell the researchers and the doctors what we should be doing and how we should be uh, translating this really neat, hopefully really important science uh, into medicines and interventions to improve human health. Um, so with that, I'll say thank you, uh, and we have a bunch of time for questions. think that dementia is a geriatric syndrome. Oh, sorry. Uh, so the question is, when I talked about geriatric syndromes, these multifactorial syndromes of aging uh, and frailty and things like that, what about dementia? Um, and I think I, I hit cognitive decline on the slide somewhere, but absolutely, I think that dementia is a geriatric syndrome. Um, and I, I'll explain the terminology a little bit, because I, I think it's important. Um, so dementia... Uh, problems with memory, problems with the brain, uh, is often caused by a particular disease, mostly. Maybe that disease is Alzheimer's disease. Maybe that disease is Parkinson's disease. These diseases have very specific molecular causes that we can study in the laboratory. But it's, not, it's never the only thing. And this is why I think dementia, as opposed to, say, Alzheimer's disease, is a geriatric syndrome. 
Something like Alzheimer's disease will contribute to dementia, but so will uh, someone's educational background. We know that people with stronger education are more resilient. Even when we measure their biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease, they may have lots of biomarkers, but they don't have dementia. Um, uh, things like cardiovascular disease, so the health of your vessels in your brain, has a huge effect on your memory and your thinking. Um, and that can contribute to dementia too. So I think of dementia or cognitive decline as a syndrome for which there are many inputs. And a big one is often something like Alzheimer's disease, but it's not the only one. How, how does the um, attitudes of the funding agencies affect your kind of studies? Uh, well, both good and bad. Uh, oh, sorry. So the question was, how does the attitude of funding agencies affect these sorts of studies? Um, in a complicated but not entirely hopeless way. Uh, so there is, uh, so one of the, uh, so many of the institutes that make up the National Institutes of Health and the vast, vast majority of, of medical research in the United States is funded through the federal government by the National Institutes of Health. Um, if you want to support accelerating medical research, the best way to do that is to encourage your, your congressmen and the people in the government uh, and to vote for ones uh, who will expand uh, and preserve funding to the National Institutes of Health. Uh, now, most of the institutes are focused on a single organ, uh, like the Institute of Cardiovascular Disease, or a single disease problem, uh, like the Institute of, of Stroke and Neurological Disorders. But there actually is a National Institute on Aging, too. Um, it, has, it has a couple of hats on. So on the one hand, it, it funds a lot of uh, geriatric medicine research, uh, about how to care for people clinically. It also funds basic science. It funds a lot of the work that I described to you. Um, so, so we do have a home in the National Institutes on Health who supports uh, research into mechanisms of aging, and that's, that's been utterly critical. This field would not have even emerged without that federal support and that dedicated federal support. Um, the, uh, the National Institute on Aging recognizes that aging affects lots of other things, too, lots of other diseases, lots of other systems. And so there are programs in the NIH uh, to encourage people to work together across different institutes and even to pool funding across different institutes uh, to study you know, cardiovascular disease in the context of aging or how things that affect aging affect cardiovascular disease. So there are some really nice collaborative cross-institute programs um, that have been... Um, promoted by the NIA, the National Institute on Aging. Now, the one, uh, so that's, that's all for the good. Uh, one of the obstacles uh, is from a commercial drug development point of view, uh, there's no FDA indication that really represents all the stuff I'm talking about right now. You can't get a drug approved to treat frailty. You certainly can't get a drug approved to, tr to treat aging. I don't think I'd want a drug to treat aging. I think I'd rather... Now, hopefully the FDA uh, will eventually be able to work with outcomes like frailty, these geriatric syndromes, things that represent aging. Uh, but there's no precedent for that yet. Um, so the, the sort of commercial drug pipeline that's led to the development of drugs for cardiovascular disease, for heart attacks, for, uh, for, um, for cholesterol, for blood pressure, uh, it doesn't exist for this sort of thing yet because drug companies don't know what to do. Uh, and this is why the, the first wave of clinical trials is mostly, not entirely, but is mostly coming from the academic side uh, because we feel like we have to be trailblazers. We have, to, we have to figure out how to do this. We have to work closely with the FDA and the NIH uh, and, and companies 
uh, to figure out how one would develop a drug that targets aging uh, and then set a precedent that other people can follow. So we hope to be kind of accelerators like that, figure out how to make it work and leave a path that others can easily follow. Oh, uh, so what's the difference between geriatrics and gerontology? Uh, depends what country you're in. Uh, so, it, uh, so often geriatrics is used to describe uh, the medical side of things, medical care of older adults, and gerontology is sometimes often used to describe the science of studying aging and studying the process uh, of, of medical problems in older adults. But there's a lot of overlap. Um, you'll often hear about uh, um, gerontological uh, certificates for nursing care. Uh, you might be a, a nurse gerontological specialist. Um, so there, there's a lot of overlap. And, and other countries actually call their, so we call ourselves geriatricians. In some countries, they're called gerontologists, even though they're, uh, they're doctors doing clinical medicine. Um, so there's, um, you're welcome to use either word. I'm a geriatrician who studies gerontology, I suppose is how I would say it, in the hope of doing geroscience. That's not good. Uh, and so this idea of geroscience, the word was coined uh, for the concept of applying aging biology to chronic disease um, and clinical problems. So that translational link between bench science and the clinical world is what geroscience is meant to encompass. Uh, oh, uh, let's go in order, front to back. Yeah. Uh, there's a shortage of geriatricians. Yeah. I saw something, 60,000 or so, yet we're all living one suggestion I have as a partial remedy is to make use of people with perhaps lesser skills or less education, like nurse practitioners, people at that level. And the other question I have is, can you distinguish between the quality of life versus the quantity of life? Great question. So the, the first one, uh, pointing out that uh, in the United States we have an enormous shortage of geriatricians. Uh, there are relatively few people coming into the field of geriatrics, not nearly enough to care for all older adults. Um, I'll comment briefly on, and, and maybe one strategy to help compensate for that uh, is to ally with, with other providers like nurse practitioners and physician assistants and nurses. Um, absolutely. Uh, there are not nearly enough geriatricians, and there never will be, to take care of everyone who might uh, benefit from us. And not everyone who's, you know, over 65, say, needs a geriatrician. Uh, you know, we specialize in, in the, the frailest, the oldest, the most complicated. The more complicated you are, the more we want to be your doctor. Um, but still, there's not nearly enough of us. Uh, that's why a lot of, us, uh, a lot of us are involved in research and a lot of us are involved in education to try to have more effect beyond our numbers. So if we can train other doctors to think like us and act like us, then maybe we don't need to see everyone personally. Um, if we can develop new systems for delivering care so that everyone will be treated as if it was a geriatrician treating them, then maybe we don't need so many of us doing hands-on care. Uh, but we all work in teams. So being a geri one, of the, one of the core elements of being a geriatrician is working in a team. Uh, we're, we're, not lonely, we're not lonely people, uh, or we would get lonely if we were alone. Uh, we like being surrounded by pharmacists, by social workers, by nurses, by nurse practitioners. Uh, we all work in a team uh, doing our parts to, to try to improve care. And absolutely, that in includes nurse practitioners, for example. Um, and then your second question, uh, testing my short-term memory. Quality. Oh, thank you. Quality versus quantity of life. So how do we measure that? Um, 
so I think there are a number of ways you could try to try to measure that in people. Uh, one way is asking someone, "How is your quality of life? How do you feel like you can do the things you want to do?" Uh, there are things you can try to measure too. You could measure how fast someone walks, for example, how easily they can get up from a chair, how many stairs can they do. So there are ways to try to uh, measure quality of life in, in both a um, in a meaningful way to a person and also a kind of measurable uh, way too. Um, since I'm a bench scientist, I'll say it's a lot harder to do that in the laboratory. What is quality of life to a worm? But people are actually thinking a lot about this and trying to figure out how to measure it. So the vigorousness of how a worm swims back and forth looking for food, you can actually quantify that. Um, and maybe that's Maybe that's a measure of quality of life. Maybe we can use that in these high-tech screens instead of just looking at how long the worm is wriggling. Uh, you mentioned early on about, uh, I, I heard you right, uh, uh, things that would uh, slow down the process of aging. One was diet restriction, fasting. And there was a, a word I didn't know, M-E-T-H-E-O-N-I-N-E. -E. Uh, I don't know what that word means. So, so are you... So if this, if this is true, then why not put everybody on fasting uh, a day or why not, uh, um, you know, and, and does, does that actually work if, if you fast one day a week? I mean, I've heard people fasting three days a week, mm -hmm. a week or something like that. And also, a second thing, uh, and going with that, do thinner people who live long, longer, technically, and... Uh, how about vegetarians? Uh, so I'll start with the second question. So related to uh, fasting and dietary restriction. Um, and the second question about do thinner people live longer? Um, probably not, actually. So particularly once you get to middle age, and I'll talk a lot more about the dietary restriction part, but particularly once you get to middle age, thinner people don't necessarily live longer. Um, and actually in, in middle age to, to young, old, Adults, um, in large studies of, of lots of people, it looks like the best spot to be is kind of in the middle, uh, somewhere n you know not too skinny, not obese, uh, but even kind of shading towards the uh, upper end of what the charts label as normal. Uh, those people actually have the longest life expectancy. Um, but again, if if you have complications of of obesity, that's obviously bad for your life. If you have diabetes and things like that. Uh, but there's this idea that a little bit of reserve is, might be helpful. Uh, and being really skinny, we don't know. Uh, but that's kind of a separate question from dietary restraint. So uh, one, of the first, uh, one of the first experiments that showed that we could do something that seemed like slowing aging uh, was almost 100 years ago when the first scientist uh, starved rats, fed them less food, and saw that they lived longer. That was almost 100 years ago. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of the science I showed you has been about gaining a more and more detailed molecular understanding of, of, of how that happens, of what are the pathways related to nutrient sensing and metabolism that intersect with things like DNA damage repair and inflammation and stress responses. And there's a lot there. Uh, the caveats are that, so, so still it's the case that one of the most uh, common ways to help an animal to live longer in the laboratory is to feed it less. Same way that you can turn down its growth hormone signals and make it live longer. It is not a universal thing, though. And this is something we've learned uh, 
more recently. Every, and it seems common sense. Every person is different. Every species is different. So on average, uh, and people have actually done this experiment with mice and with flies. So on average, if you take a whole bunch of not quite identical strains of mice or flies, they're all a little bit genetically different, sort of like a room full of people, and you put them on a, uh, a low-calorie diet, on average, they'll live longer. But that masks a huge variation from strain to strain, from, from genome to genome. Some will live a lot longer. Some actually die sooner. Some are harmed. It's just the average that's a little bit longer. So everyone is different. And to answer your question, should, should people try things like fasting or dietary restriction um, with the idea of delaying chronic diseases or doing these things I talked about that might represent slowing manifestations of aging? Um, uh, we don't know. Uh, people might try things like that. We, have, we really don't know. We're just starting to study in people what the effects are of uh, eating loss, of dietary restriction. Um, I am sure, though, that different people will respond differently. Um, and one of the goals of getting a deep understanding of the science is being able to say on an individual basis, why does someone uh, respond like this to diet or exercise, and why does someone else respond like that? Why is this person maybe helped, maybe this person isn't, maybe this person is harmed, and what makes those differences? How about vegetarian? Oh, uh, and does, is, uh, does eating a vegetarian diet associated with longer life? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, not, I don't think there's been a randomized study of it. I would guess if you looked at the population of people who are vegetarians, they probably live pretty long and are pretty healthy. That's probably because they're the sort of people who would be healthy no matter what they did. <laughs> they're, probably, you know, they're probably more active. They probably pay attention to their health. Um, it's, as long as you keep up... Uh, as long as you uh, make sure it's a healthy kind of vegetarian and you keep me up with your nutrition intake and your protein intake, um, I'm sure it's not going to harm. And who knows? What work or is there work being done on the relationship of uh, aging and hormone replacement therapy in women? Thank you. Thank you. So the question is about what's the relationship between aging and hormone replacement therapy in women, uh, but this is also a hot topic in men. And I'm glad you gave me an excuse to talk about it. So, uh, so I was just talking about... Oh, uh, so let's back up a bit. So as we age, many of our hormones start to decline. Now, this is you know, dramatically and obviously true in women who go through menopause. Uh, it's true in men, too. Uh, many of our horm hormones start to drop, not just the reproductive hormones, but things like thyroid hormone, things like growth hormone. Um, many of these things decline as testosterone, of course, the big T. These things get lower as we get older. Um, and so for a, a long time, there was this kind of theory of maybe that's not just an effect of aging, maybe that's a cause. Maybe we should give people hormones back, and that'll treat manifestations of aging. And in the case of uh, postmenopausal women, there was reason to suspect this. So women pre before menopause have a much lower risk of cardiovascular disease than men. After menopause, they catch up. So maybe the difference is the hormones. Um, and, when you, uh, and when people studied a population of women who took hormone replacement therapy, uh, it looked like that was the case. Women who took hormone replacement therapy uh, had lower rates of cardiovascular disease than women who didn't when you looked at them as a population. When we actually did a large randomized trial uh, of testing that in a, vig in a rigorous way, uh, instead of just picking women who were doing this anyway, but actually doing a randomized trial 
uh, of equal groups and assigning them to get hormone replacement or not. Uh, to people's surprise, we found out that people who took hormone replacement therapy actually had a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, the exact opposite from what we would have thought uh, from just looking at observing the population. Um, so all of a sudden, over, so this was maybe 15 years ago or so, and all of a sudden overnight, uh, the number of women taking hormone replacement therapy plummeted uh, appropriately. Um, and there's still, you know, there's still reasons to, to think about selective uh, um, situations where it might make sense to, to treat particularly onerous symptoms that are causing problems for someone, but it's certainly not a therapy for aging. We know that very well now. The same is probably true for other hormones, and we know this to varying degrees. Um, and we have reason to think so from animal studies, too. So growth hormone and the big T are in the news a lot. Uh, well, I mentioned uh, in animal studies, one of the surest ways to make an animal live longer is to lower its growth hormone pathways. Animals with mutations in growth hormone pathways uh, actually live a lot longer. Taking more growth hormone uh, or boosting those pathways genetically has the opposite effect. So more growth hormone shortens animals' life. Uh, it's the opposite of anti-aging. Um, and that's almost certainly going to be the case in people, too. Uh, replace, these hormones don't seem to be a cause of aging. They seem to be an effect of aging. Uh, now, there may be circumstances where uh, application of hormones might help to treat symptoms that are really problematic and maybe really affecting people's lives. Um, testosterone, for example, makes people feel better. Um, it can, make, it can help to build muscle mass in the right circumstance. And in some circumstances, that may make a lot of sense. It probably also increases cardiovascular risk. It's definitely not a treatment for aging. Um, so in general, hormones decline with age. That's probably an effect rather than a cause of aging. Um, and in most cases, it's probably the case that replacing those hormones will do more harm than good. But there may be select circumstances where it might make sense. Uh, there's one other question. Yeah. Does extending health span necessarily uh, extend lifespan? So the question is, does extending health span necessarily extend lifespan? Uh, we don't know. You could probably imagine either way, um, but we really don't know. In the laboratory, in general, if you make something healthier longer, it'll live longer too, but not always. Um, and there's a lot of debate now about how long can people really live? Um, you know, if, we, if people are, are being healthier into their 70s, 80s, 90s, does that mean that we're all going to start living to 100, 110, 120, 130? And we don't know yet. Probably extending health span will mean living longer too, uh, but we really don't know. There's a lot of debate about uh, even, even whether uh, the trend of people living longer, that's been going on for 150 years now, that I started off the night with, um, there's a lot of debate about whether people now have a longer or a shorter period of disability before they die compared to people 30 or 40 years ago. And there's a lot of debate about that. So we don't know. We'll stay for questions. Oh, sure. Um, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Newman. Um, I know I found his talk very engaging. Um, would you like to clap? We... <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.